Welcome to this episode of The Futureverse, brought to you by Intelligence Squared and Ytree. I'm Kamal Ahmed. Ytree was founded in 2017 to give their clients insight and advice about their money and life. Ytree calls this insight financial life intelligence. And at the heart of this idea of financial life intelligence sits the vision of a world where wealth is defined by how you live, not what you have. That's where the Futureverse comes in, a space to explore the conversations, ideas and insights that are driving change and shaping our future. Today, we're returning to our current theme in the Futureverse, redefining legacy. And I'm delighted to be joined by podcast extraordinaire, politician and world traveller, Rory Stewart. Rory's career so far has taken him from the army to politics, to international development and, most recently, to podcasting. He joins us today in his capacity as president of Give Directly. Founded in 2009, Give Directly is a non-profit that lets donors send money directly to the world's poorest, no strings attached. In the last decade, Give Directly has delivered nearly $600 million to over 1.37 million people across 11 countries and is the fastest growing NGO founded in in the 21st century. Welcome to the podcast, Rory. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kamal. We've got a huge amount to get to, to get through from unconditional cash transfers right through to cryptocurrency and the future of giving. But Rory, just let's set some of the parameters before we get into these fascinating conversations. What precisely is Give Directly? So Give Directly is a charity which is focused on extreme poverty, but unlike most charities that you'll be familiar with or that I've worked with in my life. Instead of trying to guess what somebody wants, giving them, as it were, a bicycle or telling them to open an internet cafe, it trusts people and it gives them cash unconditionally and lets them make their own choices about how to improve their lives. And the results are revolutionary because we're working with the extreme poor, so people who are living on less than $2 a day. And by giving cash, you find the most extraordinary creativity. People will adjust to what their neighbours are doing. They'll adjust to their own family's needs and priorities. They'll have a much more thoughtful, but also much more particular intervention than you'd be able to achieve if you tried to turn up and guess what they wanted for them. No amount of consultation or needs assessment exercises is half as powerful as actually just giving someone the cash and letting them make their own choices. What, Rory if those choices aren't choices that are actually very helpful either to that person, to the family, to the local community? To be brutal, Rory, what if that person just goes and spends that cash on drink? So it can happen. It's very, very rare. I mean, usually the extreme poor have a very good idea what they want to do with their money. They, If I think about a lady that I saw recently in Rwanda, she's living in a mud building with one room. She's looking after three grandchildren. The only cash she gets is about $3 a month. Her roof is leaking. Her kids are not in school. She has no water. She has no soup. And she can't uh, put a meal on the table. She struggles to put a meal on the table once a day. 
it's very unlikely that she's going to take that money and go out and drink it. What she does, and we've had more than 300 academic papers on cash, um, demonstrates that in almost every case, people make choices which address their immediate needs. So she would be likely to fix her roof, buy a cow for some milk for the kids, try to get the children back into school, put a bit of food on the table. And if she were younger, she might invest in a solar panel, start a small business. But yes, you're right. I mean, of course, it is unconditional. People can make choices, but that's part of trusting people. That's part of dignity of allowing them to make those choices. It seems incredibly uplifting, just that single story. And I've looked at the website and some of your digital work, and it's amazing these individual stories that you're able to tell from quite small amounts of money. Just wondered how you first got involved with Give Directly. Well, I started having worked in international development or on around it for uh, nearly 30 years. And having been the Minister for International Development in the British government, I had begun to get a little disillusioned with so many programs that I saw. I would go into the field and I would see that with British government aid money, we were spending thousands of dollars and ending up buying five red plastic buckets. Or I would turn up at clinics in Nigeria and find no patients and no medicines on the shelves. And then in March of this year, Give Directly invited me to Rwanda. And I went to villages and realized that by looking out of the window, I could tell a Give Directly village from a non-Give Directly village because things had been transformed so much. You could see out of the window, new roofs, new hedges, and you stepped out of your car and it smelled of cow manure because everybody was buying cows. Um, And I think exactly as you said, Kamal, I found at last a project where I felt I was comfortable giving my own money because I could feel just how much difference a small amount of money to me made to somebody in extreme poverty that every pound I gave would be worth £100 to them. Has it changed your view about aid being delivered in the ways that you were first maybe most powerfully involved in development work, obviously as a government minister, but previous to that? Has it shown that those methods really are in a net sense of course there are individual examples of fantastic work through uh, more traditional government agencies etc but broadly that this cash direct transfer um, with no conditions is a much more positive way of solving extreme poverty give directs a main mission than those government projects yeah i i think so i think so because You're right, there are good examples of work all around the world, but often they are very specific to a particular place. They rely on a very energetic individual or a very energetic team. So you you can come across people running a very good clinic in Congo or running a very good school in Malawi. But if you were to ask them to replicate it a thousand times, they'd really struggle to do so because what's happening is that their project is very dependent on their particular energy. It's not really a a, a scalable model. Cash is unlike that. Cash doesn't require heroic individuals in each village. Cash 
gets round the problem, and I think it's probably the most fundamental problem in international development, which is the problem of knowledge, because the, the truth is that the extreme poor live lives which are very difficult for people who are not in those conditions to understand. They'll live in very particular political contexts, often in areas of conflict, in very remote rural areas, and it's not realistic to expect government agencies to have the depth of knowledge or expertise to anticipate what those communities need. By giving cash, it cuts out, as it were, the middle people, doesn't require huge numbers of staff, doesn't require huge amounts of NGOs. We deliver directly to people's phones because there's been a, a revolution in the last 15 years in Africa with mobile money. So the money can go directly to someone's phone, and if they don't have a phone, we'll issue them with a phone and train them with a phone. And thereafter, it's pretty automated so that you don't have a lot of overheads and costs. The, the money gets to work very quickly in people's hands. You've touched, Rory, on some examples you've seen, for example, in Rwanda. Take us through how the process works and maybe via an example that you found particularly thrilling to be involved with. Well, the, 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 thank you. So the, the process works by field officers from Give Directly going out to a community and they'll organise a big community meeting, 300, 400 people sitting outdoors, and explain that the programme is coming explain to them that they will get a transfer of cash, but it's a, a one-time transfer. It's not going to be repeated. They will encourage them to look at other communities around that have already received money because they might want to go and see how they've spent the money. They will then sit down with individual householders, register them, find out how many people are living in the house, explain how the process is going to work, issue the telephone. And then the money will be transferred often in two or three instalments. And that's also sometimes helps people to get used to the money they might receive. If they're receiving $550, might receive $100 initially, and then the rest of the money a few weeks later. Um, what's thrilling for me, I suppose what's thrilling for me, most thrilling, was discovering in villages how much had been transformed within three or four weeks. You discover that a village would have gone almost overnight to, not overnight, but over a few weeks, to everybody having a latrine, 85% of people connecting to electricity, everybody signing up to government health insurance, people getting their livestock, 80% of people fixing their houses, huge rise in school enrollment, great improvements in nutrition. We see amazing improvements in things like stunting and bone density. And I, I think it's it, there is something very odd about it because, of course, cash has been with us for a very long time. And you would have thought that it's a very inert thing. I mean, it feels very materialistic and reductive. But the truth is what you're really giving is is freedom to people. You're giving them the choice to to reshape their own lives. Now, you said you yourself, Rory, are a donor. Were you a donor first and then got connected to the charity? Because I'm interested in... You could have done so many different things in terms of supporting, you know, this one of the UN strategic uh, goals around ending extreme poverty. What what was your journey into becoming a donor and then actually becoming ultimately the president of Give Directly? I, I think that a lot of my life from when I was 
uh, in my late teens has been about trying to think about what can be done for communities in the developing world. What are helpful ways of engaging? And I've done a number of different things, including setting up my own nonprofit in Afghanistan and working in Iraq and working in Indonesia. Give directly, though, in the end, was something that came as a great relief to me because during my lifetime, there's been increasing despair about the ability to end extreme poverty, particularly in Africa. In 1980, there were 167 million people in extreme poverty in Africa. There are 470 million today. And although the UN has this goal of ending extreme poverty by 2030, it's nowhere near on track. So I think it was an extraordinary relief to suddenly find a project so simple and tangible where I could really feel that difference. And yes, you're right, I started as a donor because I started thinking here at last is something I'm comfortable supporting because I can see what happens to the money. I can see how it works. And that's, I think it's, it's, yeah, it's that personal experience of change that brought me to work for the organisation. Can we be incredibly ambitious? Are cash transfers the solution to extreme poverty? I think that they are a very, very important part of the solution and a much bigger part than anyone has thought to date. I mean, at the moment, only about 2% of international development spend is spent on cash. I think we should be spending far more of the international development money on cash. It's true that the cash support you give will go further if you're in a country where the government is also rolling out infrastructure, where you have good governance structures. I mean, let's imagine you take your money and you invest in a small business. It's very, very helpful if there's a road or a bridge to get your products to market. So there is a sense in which cash uh, can go much further if there's a good environment around it. But what's extraordinary about cash is it can also do so much even when there isn't a good environment about around it. I mean, it's one of the few interventions that you can do in a country where you have a highly corrupt government and things not functioning because it allows you to deliver money directly to people's phones. It doesn't have to go through a government. It, it, it's, it's unusual in that respect. So many other types of development program are completely stymied. I mean, if you were trying to, I don't know, run out education programs, if the government's no good, you can't really get anywhere. Um, but cash solves a lot of those problems. So, yes, I think that if we are to solve extreme poverty, end extreme poverty in our lifetime, a very large part of it, and I think probably the vast majority of what we should be doing, is probably cash. Can we talk a little bit about your own thinking about legacy? This podcast series is talking about people um, who have been successful in life but want to be intentional about what that means. That success can come, obviously, in money, but it can come in many other ways as well, in asset wealth um, and in intellectual abilities to spread different types of thinking, for example. Just wondered, Rory, about your own thinking about legacy for yourself and maybe what advice you might give to listeners around how to consider what the world might be after you've departed 
Well, it's, it's, a very, it's a difficult question, Kamala. I mean, it's a wonderfully interesting and difficult question. And I think the idea of thinking about ourselves not just as descendants but ancestors is a very powerful one. And I think there's a sense in which taking our lives seriously, being serious about being alive, is about thinking about the example that we leave um, and, as you say, the legacy that we leave. But it's it's a curious question because at another level, of course, um, I'm very, very aware of our fragility as a species, how short our lives are compared to the, you know, the great size of the universe. Um, and I, I alternate in my own mind between thinking about questions like legacy and the example, I think, and then in other moods, I, I really do sort of relate to biblical passages saying, you know, flesh is like grass or we're basically dust. Um, it seems to me in my own life that doing something for the extreme poor makes sense because it makes sense in terms of our direct obligation to other human beings. I mean, I think the suffering of the extreme poor is more dramatic, more extreme than almost anything that we see in our lives, that people sometimes have a romantic picture of what it means, but of course it's not romantic at all. It's a situation in which, you know, one in five children in the village will be dying before they're five, in which adult life expectancy will be 37, in which one of my staff members had was in a village recently where she saw a mother put stones in a cooking pot and put the cooking pot on the fire so that the children could go to sleep thinking she was cooking something because she had no food to give them. And I think that engaging people in that, engaging people in the horror of a world in which we can easily, you know, 0.1% of global GDP would be enough to get people above $2.15 a day. And we're not doing it. So I think that that's probably giving people a sense of hope, giving people a sense of possibility, reminding people that it, it isn't necessary for people to live in extreme destitution, um, I think is a worthwhile thing. Do you think it would be, for Western governments, obviously there's a deep debate about what's called aid, a word I must admit I quite dislike, but put that to one side. Um, would governments in the West be actually just better advised to give to organisations like Give Directly, who can then engage in unconditional cash transfers? I'd love to see that. I'd love to see that. I think in, in order to get governments giving large amounts of money, though, we need to demonstrate at quite a large scale how cash contributes to ending extreme poverty. Our data is very, very strong at a village level, even a district level. But the impacts of doing it at a full national scale, taking a single country and doing cash transfers to everybody in extreme poverty, hasn't been tried yet. I think it's important it's done because if it can be demonstrated that we can make a significant difference to the number of people living in extreme poverty through cash transfers, then we can change an entire international conversation and all that $165 billion a year spent 
as you say, in aid money by the World Bank, by the UN, by different countries. I think much more of that could then be directed towards cash. But at the moment, uh, we still live in a very old-fashioned world where everybody was told, you know, don't give someone a fish, teach them to fish. And cash feels like a kind of big fish-giving project. <laughs> um, but the truth is that uh, that proverb... Um, is actually a bit patronizing. Most of the people that I see already know how to fish. The problem is they don't have the money for the fishing rod. Generally, the extreme poor are not primarily lacking in knowledge. We, we like to think that because it makes us feel superior, makes us feel we have. And it also means that it, it, it gives us more ego. We're teaching them something. It's, there's a bit of humility involved in just giving someone cash because you're saying, I don't really know better than you do what your life is. I haven't really got much to contribute um, apart from my cash. Here's some cash. And... So I think it's, it's interesting, and it's true with governments and philanthropists. They're... The number of times when I ask people for financial support for the extreme poor, and they're slightly offended, what they want to do is give their advice. They want to give their thoughts. Um, but often, sadly, what the extreme poor needs is not our advice. Um, well, what they need is our money. Probably most of us feel um, if we are able to get out of the big abstract into the individual and think about if a friend of yours was really in trouble and you really wanted help, rather than you doing a sort of needs assessment process with them and getting out a spreadsheet and then going off and buying what you think they need, probably the best way to help them would be in their moment of need to give them some cash to see them through their, their problem. And it, it's odd that we understand that with our own friends, but we struggle to understand that with someone at the other end of the world. How, Rory, does this approach map in with, maybe even contradict at times, the effective altruism movement? We've had a uh, Professor Peter Singer, um, who's the sort of ideological father, really, of effective altruism about what is effective giving and how do you know if your money is being well spent that notion which people who are business people or involved in the creation of profitable enterprises return on investment roi as as we describe it how does how does um give directly and unconditional cash transfers sit alongside the effective altruism movement well, actually, we came out of the effective altruist movement because, and and I I know Peter Singer and and we 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 admire Peter Singer deeply because in some ways we are the product of that movement because it's the effective altruism movement that allowed us to say here are more than three hundred academic papers demonstrating the extraordinary impact of cash, and to say to people even though it's counterintuitive even though it feels strange to be giving cash, here is the evidence, follow the evidence. And recent studies have demonstrated that giving a Kenya study recently, giving a dollar of cash results in $2.40 worth of returns because the the money is spent both in productive investments, investing in your business, getting the income up, but simply consumption itself, buying things, contributes to the general economy. I start fixing my roof, the village next door is providing people to fix my roof or they're selling me the tin sheeting. I have a cow, the cow has another cow, I sell the milk, etc. So it's, we we are very much from that movement, but we're from 
we we go beyond some of effective altruism because some of effective altruism is concerned with the question of how what bang for your buck do you get for a, from a malaria net? The answer is you get a lot of bang for your buck from a malaria net. You buy a malaria net, uh, you can save lives, and a malaria net is quite cheap. But it's but we're asking a slightly different question, which is what would it take to end extreme poverty globally? Not just what would it take to deal with malaria, and we're also looking not just at the question of how would you spend a hundred or two hundred million dollars, because there's a limit to how much money you can spend on buying malaria nets. We're asked the question: What would you do with the full hundred and sixty-five billion dollars spent by the International Development Agency? And there, we think the return on investment of demonstrating cash in a country context could be much higher than almost anything else. Now, Rory, you've been in the charity sector for over a decade. Um, you're expert in this area. You've done a huge amount of work, as as your wife, of course, with. Uh, the founding of Turquoise Mountain in 2006, and your wife is now chief executive of, of that organisation, uh, which obviously deals with cultural heritage. Tell us a bit about how Give Directly and other charitable um, organisations, can they work together at these different lanes? I'm just thinking people listening to this podcast might have all sorts of ways they could deploy their funding or the, the money or the wealth they have created to think about that word I love actually that you use think about ourselves as ancestors not about legacy which is a very interesting way to think about it we're trying to help them navigate these different opportunities many with compelling narratives given your own experience directly in your family how do how do you how would you advise people to come to decisions over all those compelling stories that could be worth their money? It is very difficult. It's it's a very difficult thing. And there's no obvious answer. And of course, the, the, the truth is that we live in a world where there is often a lot of marketing and sales pitches and unreliable stories about things that when you turn up on the ground, turn out to be much less good than you were told. And it's very difficult sometimes for somebody giving in Britain or the United States or Europe to really assess what is an effective charity on the ground. Um, but I think the there is basically no substitute from visiting the field. I mean, you can look at data, you can look at numbers, you can look at academic papers, but just as, as anyone listening to this if they were thinking about, you know, let's say they had a, a child or a relative going into school, the best way really of getting a sense of that school is not just to read the school inspector's reports, but actually to walk around the building and have a look at the teachers and have a look at the atmosphere in the playground. And the same is, is true, I think, in international development. There's just no substitute from actually seeing what's happening because it gives you a chance not to just to meet the recipients and see the projects, but also meet the teams that are delivering them and work out whether you trust them, whether you feel uh, they have the right balance of, of honesty and pragmatism and optimism that you need to get a project done. Now, I know we're talking about extreme poverty, but some people may be listening to this and wondering, yes, we are talking about emerging economies. Could this actually be something that could work for economies that are more developed? Could it work in Europe? Could it work in America? For those of, I go to America regularly for my new business. 
you there is shocking evidence of extreme poverty in the most developed nations. I just wondered, Rory, whether you've considered how cash could be used in those situations, or is that not where Give Directly wants to focus? No, we, we have, and we have done programs in the United States. We particularly did programs delivering cash relief to Americans who'd have been affected by hurricanes, and most recently in Florida. We've also worked around Chicago with the government there and in Georgia doing uh, cash programs post-COVID, delivering cash to the very poorest. And of course, to some extent, cash is a bedrock of what already happens in Europe. Our welfare states are basically systems where we do transfer cash to people. Um, in fact, uh, one of the big developments in the way in which welfare state provision has happened over the last 200 years in Europe is that instead of um, providing people, for example, as you would have done in the past with food parcels, uh, we've tended to move towards providing people with cash. Um, we've, uh, In fact, if you look at the full combination of unemployment benefits, disability benefits, housing benefits, etc., these are ways of saying that the very poorest, even in the developing world, uh, need cash, need cash support. Um, the, the, the issue, though, is that the amount of money that you need to give in the developed world is much, much greater because people are starting from a much higher level. And therefore, for us as a non-profit, there's a limit to how much we really would do in the developed world because $550 is literally life-transforming for a lady in a, a mud building in on the Rwanda-Burundi border. $550 is not life-transforming for somebody in poverty in the US or Britain. Even with that, Rory, could it, should it, has it worked ever in the UK? This direct yes, think, transfer for... for yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's, 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 yes, um, at large scale, of course, it does make an enormous difference. And um, there's, there's no doubt at all that there is a very strong correlation between the increase in child poverty in Britain over the last 12 years and the reduction in cash payments to the extreme poor. And has Give Directly been involved in the UK? No, we've not done programmes in the UK. We've done programmes in the US, but not in the UK. Could you imagine you would be? Um. I, I, again, would probably steer away from it because I would think that it's the job of the government. I think that it's a, we have it's the fifth largest economy in the world. The government has uh, very good data on the poor. It has benefit systems. What the government should be doing is providing more generous benefits. Let's talk about one of the biggest conversation areas in financing, and that's around uh, crypto. And I was interested, listening to The Rest is Politics, that you said you had actually been in touch with Sam Bankman-Fried, who has obviously been through a tumultuous experience at FTX and is now facing charges around uh, fraud. I just wondered, uh, Rory, was that something that you thought the cryptocurrency revolution, the way of transferring um, non-central banked uh, backed uh, finance, the whole growth of uh, uh, blockchain environments could have been a real rocket booster to what Give Directly did and does. And have you now had to have pause for thought? Yeah, well, you're, you're absolutely right that given that we are in the business of electronic transfers 
of cash to people's telephones. Many people came to us and encouraged us to do more with different forms of cryptocurrency. And we have explored with many different donors delivering cryptocurrency to people, whether giving the extreme poor in Africa cryptocurrency would give them a certain degree of independence, that there would be advantages, as you said, with traceability. But it hasn't yet been fully demonstrated. We haven't yet seen examples where crypto feels like a significant advantage to what we are doing at the moment with mobile money in Africa. And so we've had a lot of very generous donors who come from the crypto space, and we continue to explore collaborations with them. But um, to be honest, I'm yet to see the model where we can really feel why giving crypto to the extreme poor would be better than giving them cash. And, and, And that's partly because I, of course, am a little concerned about the risk. I mean, I'm concerned that it feels more practical to me for the extreme poor, even if they received it in crypto, to convert their money into cash quite quickly to meet their immediate needs. And you were clearly in contact with Sam Bankman-Fried very close to the moment at which so much of the controversy became public. Had you actually done any kind of deal uh, with him or with FTX? Were you expecting anything to come via via his companies and, and his own supposed, supposed wealth at that point? So Sam Bankman-Fried had given us some money, I mean, not by his standards very much money, but had given us some money at the beginning of the year, uh, as he had to many, many other effects of altruism causes. And um, we were, of course, grateful to receive that money. I then spoke to the head of his foundation three, four weeks ago, hoping that we could get him to do something really impressive. Uh, Of course, you know, in those days, he was talking about giving away most of his money. And so I thought perhaps this is somebody who would really want to put very significant money. You know, my fantasy was maybe he'd want to put a billion dollars into trying to lift an entire country out of extreme poverty. But it became pretty clear to me, talking to the head of his foundation, that he'd moved on from wanting to do things on poverty. And his major focus uh, was on these much long, more long-term issues. He was interested in artificial intelligence and seemed as though he was sometimes interested in robot ob- overlords and asteroid hits and things that might affect the world in, uh, well, not our generation, but, you know, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 years in the future. And, Roy, do you think that was... A lot of very wealthy people are interested in those type of issues which are for the future, possibly risks or not risks or opportunities. And sometimes solving extreme poverty might seem a little, I don't know, utilitarian, even... Dull is the completely wrong word, Rory, but do you know what I mean? It doesn't have yeah. that maybe that excitement of, wow, I'm going yeah, I... to solve the artificial intelligence. That's a much better place for me to put my money. I agree. And, and I can find that a little frustrating because, of course, as you would know and many people listening, um, extreme poverty is shameful. It's something that is well within our reach to address that the money that the billionaires have put into the giving pledge, a fraction of that would be enough, I believe, to lift the world out of extreme poverty if we concentrated on it. But you're absolutely right. For some reason, many people seem to think it's not fashionable anymore. It doesn't interest them. And that I find very, very odd. I mean, in the end of that conversation with Sam Bankman-Fried's foundation, 
the head of the foundation said, to be honest, I'm not that interested in poverty. And I thought that was a slightly chilling uh, statement. I, I can't really understand how as a human you could say that you're just not that interested in it because you're essentially saying you're not that interested in human suffering. And Rory, it shows that you need to be on your toes, don't you, when people have been creating wealth in innovative ways and are and you're considering what is the long term uh health of give directly in the end fiat cash which you can touch and feel and has some form of structure sitting behind it in the forms of central banks has been tried and tested and stick with it yeah i well like i can absolutely i mean i'm not an expert on crypto but i i of course understand the instincts of people who are who are being cautious in that way have you done any crypto um, transfers? We've explored them, um, but we're, we're yet to really make it work because we're, I mean, our philosophy is recipients first and we're really driven by what the extreme poor want. Um, and at the moment, we're, we're not getting a sense that what they want is crypto. We're getting a sense that what they want is is more straightforward cash. What a fascinating conversation this has been Rory thank you so much for your time I just want to ask you at the end we've touched on this issue of being a responsible ancestor almost feels grammatically the wrong way around but I know exactly what you mean (laughs) just lay out how you think about how you and your family can be responsible ancestors well I think as a human, one wants to think, from my point of view, or maybe this is a daft way of thinking, but I, I would probably think in the 100 to 200 year time frame at maximum. I think beyond that, you're entering a world that's almost unimaginable, particularly with the current acceleration of the world. So I think one does want to try to think about how one can reshape a world that feels in 50 or 100 years time a better world than the one we've inherited, leave an environment in a better situation than we inherited, leave the extreme poor in a better situation than we've inherited, find ways of addressing, from my point of view, the kinds of issues of global conflict which have arisen again with Russia-Ukraine, create international systems to, to bring peace. And I think the project of humanity, the project of us becoming more thoughtful, more deft, more respectful towards nature, more compassionate towards each other, more productive, more creative, is is very much a work in progress. And we're all doing our part as one part in many billion in, in shaping a world that we hope in 100 or 200 years' time is, is one that people are proud of. Rory Stewart, President of Give Directly, thank you very much. Thank you.